Do you feel as if reality has been altered? That something or someone has interfered with our collective present moment? Then this is the podcast for you. This is the sound of duality. This has the sound of a DMT molecule as it travels through your body, opening you to the knowledge that you seek. It's also the sound of sheep and bliss, wandering this universe and the concept of Sonder as you play a lead role created by these two states of being. Pull up a pew and take a seat. This is a podcast of all you touch and all you see. The guests are everything in between. Enjoy the ride. Enjoy the duality of each state of being and the very thin line between each. All right, everybody, welcome to Pull Up a Pew. We have another fantastic episode for you today with Anthony Peak. And if everybody remembers, that was the first interview that I started podcasting with. Uh, we're doing this for his new book, which is The Hidden Universe, an investigation into human, or I'm sorry, non-human intelligence it's a culmination really of all of his work. Uh, he's been very consistent over the years, I feel. And this book just kind of puts everything into a really nice bite size uh, portion uh, so people can understand all of his theories and, and concepts having to do with consciousness and uh, beings that aren't of this realm. So pick that up. It's very, very cool. Um, and, uh, on tome time, which this is really what this is. It's a mashup episode. You're going to hear, uh, Nick Aris doing the interview of Anthony. Uh, I gave him the information for Anthony and they set up a time to do the interview and, and so he's doing it. So, uh, everybody, I highly recommend subscribing to that too. Uh, and, it's got some incredible interviews and access to the audiobooks at costs that other people don't have uh, for these authors. So there's some big advantages there. And hit the five stars for them. That's super important. Also, obviously, you know, subscribe here to pull up a pew and give us five stars so that we can be seen and noticed and on Apple and just uh, move up the up the ranks. That's what's important. And we're getting so much word of mouth advertising. We're getting so many downloads. You guys, you've got to just remember to go and hit those five stars for us. We'd really appreciate it. You know, we don't even ask for Patreon money right now. We don't have sponsors. We're independent podcasters. We do this out of our own time, just for the love of it. And because we love, uh, you know, bringing these interviews and information out to you, um, you know, the listeners. So just remember that, uh, make sure and remember that the core of this endeavor of a Sonder production, that's the main, 
production company, if you want to call it that, which it's independent, it's our own, you know, it's just three, uh, three <laughs> podcasts. So, but the core one is Owl Once Was Lost podcast for the missing. And uh, it's a phone application. You can go on to Apple, iOS, and Android and download it that way. And uh, trust me, it's it's something that everybody that has a child, everybody that's got an elderly adult in an uh, institution or are mentally challenged in any way, you have to have this app. It's free. Just take a look at it. Download if if you don't like it, get rid of it. I'm telling you though, you're going to because it's so simple to use. It's so easy, and it can locate people within that first crucial hour just by the sheer uh, numbers uh, or the law of large numbers. So it's pretty simple to understand uh, how that works. So also. That's the one that really is important with uh, all of the listeners that we do have and downloads for the OWL podcast, which is the Once Was Lost podcast. We need you guys not just to subscribe, but to please, on Apple, hit the five stars. So it's not just for apps. It's for the, you know, it's for the uh, podcast, too. It's for both of them. It's super important. You guys hear that all the time. Um, I know you guys, you know, do Patreon and other things for other podcasts that are out there. And again, we don't even uh, ask presently here for Patreon funds. So just show your love by mashing that five-star button. Kick it in. Kick in the button. Do whatever you want to it. (laughs) But just... uh, Make sure and and hit it. So, all right, guys, we're going to go ahead and get into this interview with Anthony and and Nick, and I hope you enjoy it. I know that you will. All right, here they come. In an era defined by hyperpolarization, those with differing beliefs have never seen further and further apart. There is a constant war raging between two seemingly opposing sides for who or what. In an era defined by hyperpolarization, those with differing beliefs have never seen further and further apart. There is a constant war raging between two seemingly opposing sides for who or what gets to define the narrative. Enter tome time. Cut through the noise of thousands of frantic and fractured voices. Rediscover the love for books and the prolonged, thoughtful state that they create. Discover nuance. Define complexities. Achieve thoughtful compromise. Create the new narrative. Welcome to Tome Time. I'm your host, Nick Harris. Welcome to the next episode of the Tome Time podcast. Joining us is a best-selling author, an incredibly talented public speaker, and someone who specializes in something that's close to my heart, which is the study of altered states of consciousness. With us is Anthony Peake. Anthony grew up near Liverpool, England. He has several degrees. He's written many books, and he is actually 
a member of several very renowned institutions, including the Institute of Noetic Sciences, which has always intrigued me. His latest book is called The Hidden Universe, an investigation into non-human intelligences. Anthony really offers us a scientific approach for understanding the hidden layers of reality behind many unexplained psychic and other phenomena, including our knowledge, visions, and visitations from the so-called others. They've been called many things throughout history, from angels to spirits, from the watchers, from the archon to the jinn, from aliens to ghosts. Humanity has long sought for a better understanding of the nebulous intelligences beyond our normal human experience. What are these others? Where are they located? How can we contact them? What is really going on here? It's an honor to speak with you, and thanks for making this interview happen. Anthony Peake. Wonderful to speak to you as well, Nick. Um, very interested in this, how this conversation is going to bear out. Uh, it's going to be very, very interesting, I think. Yes. So parapsychology is something that has always greatly intrigued me, and noetic science in particular, ever since I read the novel actually by Dan Brown, don't know if you've ever uh, encountered it, but The Lost Symbol mm. really explores these themes. And for people who don't know, noetic sciences attempt to establish an evidence-based scientific method for exploring what otherwise might be thought of as psychic or spooky, you know, paranormal phenomena. Can you establish some of the standards for evidence and, and reasoning that you bring to these kind of controversial investigations? Absolutely. Um, just to, as a point of definition, um, I always have defined myself as being a skeptic. I'm very much from the skeptical wing of um, research. And indeed, mm -hmm. you know, I was a regular reader of the Skeptical Inquirer and various other magazines and my bookcases are full of people who would be argued to be skeptics, people like Gardner and various other people. But for me, I go back to the statement made by Mar Marcello Trui many, many years ago. It, it, it is regularly misquoted as being said by Carl Sagan, which it isn't. It's actually called the Sagan Proof, I think. But in fact, it was a guy called Marcello Trui who said extraordinary claims need extraordinary proofs. So, for example, if I turn around and I say to you, I saw a green car driving down the road, nobody would expect me to bring forth evidence for that because, you know, we can prove that green cars exist in, in we, how we define exist is another matter. But nevertheless, you know, we would agree in consensual reality, green cars exist and we share them within our consensual reality. But if I turn around and I said, I saw a pink elephant floating down the middle of the street, <laughs> or I encountered entities or greys or whatever, my mm -hmm. level of proof and the demands that science would make of me to prove those extremes would be fairly strong because this is the way it should be. You know, extraordinary claims need extraordinary proofs. And right, that famous line from the cosmos, yeah. I know, exactly. And in terms of paranormal phenomena, you know, the very word paranormal, you know, above normal, these are things that do not fit in within the present scientific paradigm, but could be proof of something far deeper. But in order to convince the skeptics you have to engage the skeptics using their own tools. Now, for example, you know, the scientific method is basically things need to be repeatable. You know, if you make mm -hmm. a claim that you can get out of your body at will and you can move to another room 
and you can witness things in that room, all well and good. So all you need to do is to be tested. Somebody leaves a six-digit number in that room, you go into that room, you read it, and then you come back. And these are the kind of claims that have to be rationalized and dealt with. And this is what I do. I very much deal with the science. And my starting point is always the science. And I move from the science to the evidential, to the phenomenological in terms of people's experiences. Interesting. That really appeals to me. I actually have a philosophy in, of science background. So, I mean, I understand everything from Karl Popper's falsificationism, the idea that it's not, uh, it's not truly a hard science until your claim can actually be falsified or validated by some sort of experimentation, you know, really getting back to the scientific method. So that intrigues me because I, uh, I, I have had some experiences in the realm of, you know, paranormal experiences, but it, it always um, really solidifies it for me when I can see that someone is taking the scientific method seriously. Well, I think it comes so, down to, doesn't it? It comes down to the application of Occam's razor. And it does, you know, in the final analysis, if, if you can come up with the simplest explanation is usually the correct one. You know, if you see a, a levitating table, the simpler explanation is that the medium is cheating, as Palladino did. You know, mm -hmm. and we know from history, these people notoriously cheated. We also know that the area of parapsychology lends itself to cheating and people can do things for pecuniary advantage. They can gain money and they can do various things by claiming things they cannot do. And we have to separate the wheat from the chaff here. There are extraordinary experiences, as you intimated there. We've all had them. We've all had precognitive, many of us have had precognitive experiences. The question is, we need to we need to explain them within the, the, our present understanding of science. And this is what I've tried to do in my 11 books, is to say, right, okay, what's the scientific explanation for this? Can we have a scientific explanation for life after death? Can we have a scientific explanation for deja vu, precognition, these things? And I believe I can present them. Absolutely. There was a powerful quote you shared from William Blake's poem, The Mar Marriage of Heaven and Hell, that said, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. For man has closed himself up till he sees all things through narrow chinks of his cavern. A central theme of your new book is to use the lens of altered states of consciousness to see through the veil of perception into more layers or dimensions of reality. Scientists use entheogens, or more commonly psychedelics, to study how people are encountering and or communicating with various non-human intelligences, and thus try to investigate these phenomena with all the rigors of the scientific method to better understand these other levels of reality, as well as the entities, as you call them, these things from somewhere else. In the intro to your new book, you describe a hypnagogic light experience you had with a team of researchers on the shores of Lake Geneva. You write, what I experienced that weekend totally changed my understanding of what reality truly is. Through the effects of the hypnagogic light experience, I was introduced to a perceptual world beyond my everyday experience. A world that seems to be all around us, even though in ordinary states of consciousness, we simply do not perceive it. Can you describe for our listeners what exactly this hypnagogic light experience entailed? And what do you mean by a perceptual world beyond our ordinary experience? The hypnagogic light experience is a machine 
that was invented or designed from the bottom up by a consultant neurologist called Engel, uh, called uh, Dirk Prokol and a consultant psychologist called uh, um, Engelbert Winkler. Engelbert Winkler came across my work many years ago. He had a near-death experience when he was a child and had been searching for an explanation for the experience he had, which actually led him then to become a psychologist and become a consultant psychologist. Now, he has. Uh, we had a mutual friend called Evelyn Alassa Vellerano, who works at the University of Geneva and is also a researcher into near-death experiences. She's written books with people like Kenneth Ring, and she's a member, as, as I used to be, of the International Association of Near-Death Studies. Mm-hmm. And she'd mentioned that I was planning to visit her in Geneva. And immediately Engelbert said, I need to meet this guy, and I need to show this guy this new machine that they'd built. Now, it originally started because Engelbert, when he was working with traumatized children, realized that he could put children into light hypnotic states when they were under natural light. Now, in Switzerland with the mountains sometimes, you know, the light isn't always natural or it's bouncing off things. So he wanted to create as best he could, as close he could to natural light. So that's when he approached his good friend, Dirk Prokol, to say, Dirk, can we? Can I work with you neurologically and your understanding of how the brain works, how the, the, uh, the neurons in the brain work and how they interface with each other in such a way that we could build a machine that could, could facilitate light hypnotic states? They then realized that they had something more here and they started to work with stroboscopic light as well as intensities of light. And they found that when they did this, people would see things differently. It would seem to change the way the brain structured itself. Mm. And this machine is very much based similarly. There's a guy called Geissen who in the uh, the 1960s worked with people like Burroughs, the American writer. And they worked on something that they they had a light device, Um, but it was nowhere near as clever as this. This is completely different to anything that's on the market. So anyway, they invite me over and they bring it over. They drove. They drive over from Austria. They work in. The, they live in the Tyrol in Austria, a place called Kufstein. And they drive over to Geneva, to Evelyn's house, and they wheel this machine in. Now, again, if anybody's interested here, if you you look, if you search for me and Lucid Light Device or the Hypnagogic Light Device on YouTube, you will actually see the incident I'm about to describe because somebody filmed it when it was while it was happening. So hmm. they wheel the thing in, and I don't know, probably you're not old enough to remember, but in the 1950s, there was a movie called The Original Version of War of the Worlds with Gene Barry. Yeah. And the <laughs> UFOs in that looked just like this machine. It was I've really, seen it. You have. Yeah. So you know the way the UFOs are, and you see the UFOs, <laughs> the thing that comes out the middle of them with the eye, it looks like that. So they wheel this thing in, and I think, oh, my mm-hmm. God, this is going to be quite freaky. <laughs> so I then sit down in front of it, and they switch it on. You close your eyes, and all you see is flickering white light. Now, I started to feel slightly embarrassed here because they were so excited. They gave me this, one of the strongest effects they could give on the hypnagogic light device. But I sat there for about five minutes, and nothing happened. And I'm thinking to myself, hmm, what am I going to say to them? Am I going to pretend something happened? Right, right. And then suddenly something did, and it was extraordinary. Because what initially happened was it was as if there was somebody had thrown blue paint into the right side of my visual field, and then somebody else had thrown 
red paint into the other side. And then they started merging together and they and the, the colors started to spin like um, mm. a vortex. And then it was like I was being drawn into this channel of colors. Rather like, again, the sequence, again, obviously you know your movies, the, the ending sequence of 2001, A Space Odyssey, where they go through the Stargate. It was like that. It was like a near-death right. experience. I okay. was pulled down this, this, this place. So mm. I turned around to them and I said, so you've changed the colors, have you? And they said, no, no, no. You can open your eyes ever so slightly now to see. And I opened my eyes and to my utter astonishment, the light was still white. So these colors were being created by my brain. They were not being created by the light at all, nor were the vortices and everything else I was seeing. Okay. So then I closed my eyes again and then it started to get totally strange because I could see in my extreme right periphery vision. The only thing I can describe, the nearest thing is a scotoma. Now, I suffer from classic migraine, and a scotoma from anybody who's a classical migrainer will know that it's when your visual field starts to break down. You get these kind of jagged patterns in your visual field, yeah. and it's Floaters a breakdown. Yeah. Okay, so it's a breakdown in your visual field. But it was in my extreme visual field. So I said, can I look away from the light? Because there's something extraordinary happening down there. And they said, yes, you can look away because your brain has now encoded the light. So I looked down and I still, to this day, cannot believe what I saw. I was looking down at the surface of a planet. I was probably, I don't know, 30, 40 miles above the surface, maybe more. I could see the curvature of the planet. But what was weird was the planet was covered in a checkerboard pattern. And the edge of the checkerboard pattern were flashing blue lights right into the edge of the planet and the curvature of the planet. And I felt like I was floating. Now, being the heroic person I am, I turned around and said, switch it off, please. And it, it was gone. It gone. Straight away, as soon as they switched it off, it had disappeared. Okay? Now, wow. I found this extraordinary because suddenly I had seen something I did not, I could not even begin to quantify what I was seeing. But I've right. subsequently researched this. And what I was seeing was what Carlos Castaneda called the lights of the world. It, it, these blue lights are a symbol that people have. Now, on top of that, I contact a friend of mine I was explaining, a guy called um, Robert Bruce, who lives in Australia, who's an out-of-body researcher. And when I described it to him, he told me, he said, look at the back page of my, my own book, his book. And he said, is that what you saw? And I said, yes, it was. And he said, that's the astral plane. It's what you'd seen. And on the astral plane, the, 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 the checkable pattern was the astral plane. And I, I thought, right, okay. So then going back to the story then, we then start discussing various things not to do with the light experience. And as we're talking, I start to feel the strangest sensation. And it was a vibrationary sensation in the center of my forehead. And this started to continue. And it was as if something was in the center of my head. That It continued all through the evening, and that night I had the most extraordinary dreams. I dreamt of snakes. I was seeing snakes. Snakes were looking down at me and everything else. Now, I've subsequently researched this whole effect, and I believe what the hypnagogic light device does is it stimulates the pineal gland to excrete or more arguably synthesize from melatonin an endogenous substance which an associate researcher of mine has called metatonin. It's endogenous dimethyltryptamine. It makes the, mm. the pineal gland synthesize uh, dimethyltryptamine, which is one of the most powerful hallucinogenic substances known to man. 
Right. And what other people would argue it was opening my third eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a more sort of traditional way of describing it, right? It is, but effectively, I think it's more than that because I've now written extensively about dimethyltryptamine and dimethyltryptamine experiences. And indeed, mm-hmm. I work with researchers in the field who are doing controlled research on dimethyltryptamine at the moment at the Imperial College in London and also yeah. some associates I know working down at Sussex University as well. So, this Yeah, is- we're going to get to that. Um, okay. Just really quickly, I want to touch on the idea that so you something's been triggered in the neurology. Yes. But then you start to so you're you're having an experience of seeing something that wasn't there before, but now you are. And so it, it has to do with this idea of, of the hidden layers of reality that your book is kind of unpacking. And in previous interviews I'd heard you say that Einstein actually believed in sort of hidden variables behind physical reality. In effect that the reality has different levels of reality encoded into this sort of 4d 3d space and time dimension that we're in and you discussed the fact that there's been really even in established fields uh, an accepted failure of the materialist reduction model of reality it doesn't quite capture the complexity of all these different multiple layers beyond our five senses and uh you know, minds like Albert Einstein and John Archibald Wheeler, who's highly underrated, he coined the term black holes, was highly influential in the Manhattan Project. Uh, Einstein and Wheeler agree that uh, the new models of reality show that this is a participatory universe, that there's some way that our consciousness is actually bringing things into existence, essentially, by having an experience. And I'm wondering, can you comment on that process particularly oh absolutely this is exactly where my work is going at the moment and i'm starting to pull together material for our next book my next book and Mm. this is the area i'm going to be exploring in greater detail i think what we have to realize is that the materialist reductionist model is very very effective it it is the reason that we were able to communicate now and it's a very simple process it is literally You take an object and you reduce it down to its component parts to understand how it works. Like a motorcycle, you take a motorcycle apart so you understand how the internal combustion engine works. You can similarly take apart matter in such a way that you can break it down to its basic components of its molecules and its atoms and its subatomic particles. This works very, very well. The problem is this, when you start to get down to a certain level of reality, it starts to break down because as quantum physics has taught us, you know, quantum physics that was first suggested way back in 1900 by Max Planck when he did a presentation at the University of Berlin. The issue is that when you get to the extremely tiny and the very, very small, the solidity that we believe is around us just vanishes. For instance, physical material objects are 99.9999999999996 empty space. Mm. The things that are made physical within that are then um, the objects that make up the internal mechanisms, the electrons that are whirling round or supposedly whirling round uh, the central nucleus of the atom. But these objects themselves are not basic objects. For instance, an electron is a point particle, which means it has no extension in space. 
within the within the nucleus of the atom, you have the proton and the neutron, both of which are in turn not basic particles because they're made up of quarks. And they are made up of a group of three quarks. There will be like a two up quarks and a down quark or two down quarks and up quarks. Quarks themselves are then point particles, which again don't have any extension in space. These subatomic particles then exist within fields. And the fields are carried by, and the electromagnetic field are carried by things called bosons, which are things that carry the information. A classic boson is a photon. Now, a photon is a point of light. Now, photons are the things by which we see the reality around us. But photons are incredibly peculiar objects. They have zero mass or very little mass. And again, they have no extension in space. Also, they can only ever travel at the speed of light. Now, Einstein taught that at the speed of light, things happen. There is no time at the speed of light. So therefore, the objects that are making you see the external reality, which we know is 99.xs, empty space, are in themselves are particles that have no extension in space and are timeless. Okay, so this suddenly makes reality seem incredibly peculiar. Now, right. the materialist reductionist model cannot even begin to address this in any way. Now, Albert Einstein argued that, that without going into a lesson in quantum physics, but basically there was something called the Copenhagen interpretation, which was put forward by uh, Niels Bohr and his associates in Copenhagen in the 1920s and the 1930s. And they came to the conclusion, and get this, that reality comes into existence at the act of measurement, that all these subatomic particles, and this is a known fact, before they are measured or observed, are literally waves of probability. The subatomic particle could be anywhere in the universe. The moment they are measured makes them reduce to a solid particle be it a point particle, that could be located in a specific place and location. Now, the question is, what do we consider to be an act of observation or an act of measurement? Well, there's an argument to say an act of observation is by a sentient being. So therefore, there's an argument to say that the act of observation brings about reality. Einstein didn't like this. As he once was quoted, he said, I do not believe that the moon does not exist if I do not look at it. And he argued that there is something beneath the quantum physics and the quantum particles we see, which he called the hidden variables. Now, there's a very famous quantum, well, he's not that famous, but he should be, um, who is an uh, Anglo-American uh, called David Bohm. And David Bohm took Einstein's ideas and he said that at a much deeper level of reality, there is order. And there is sequence, but it is to do with the fact that reality itself is holographic in nature. It is created out of information. And at its base level, physical reality is not physical. It is just information. And recent research has shown that information itself has a form of solidity to itself. That it Okay, can so that's a, good, that's a really great segue. Building on that... Can you expand on what this this new model that goes beyond material reductionism, what does that structure look like? Uh, well, this is where it becomes fascinating because um, David Bohm, and where, this is where the area I'm working in at the moment is, that David Bohm argued that, as you say, that the true nature of everything is information and that everything is enfolded within itself. So when we think of three-dimensional space, 
Three-dimensional space itself is an illusion because, as Einstein argued, space and time are the same thing. Space and time are not related. They are the same thing. They are space-time. So therefore, time and space, time does not exist in space and space does not exist in time. They're the same thing. They are enfolded Mm. in each other. And the same argument goes for all physical reality. It is far more complex and far more fascinating. Now, Bohm argued that things worked holographically. Now, the interesting thing about a hologram is that if you take a holographic image and you break it into parts, it's not like a jigsaw puzzle. If you had a jigsaw puzzle and you broke it into parts, each each part of the jigsaw puzzle has a, a little component part of the overall image. A holographic image doesn't. A holographic image, if you break up a holographic image, each part of the image contains the whole image. It may be denuded, but it's the whole image. Now, this is starting to then tell us something really fascinating about reality, because suddenly we have what he called the implicate and explicate orders, that there's an implicate order that everything is based upon, which then consciousness brings out by its act of observation into the visual world and the world of the senses that we experience. So there's a direct one-to-one relationship between you as your observer, the observer of the reality you see, and the observe the, the reality that's outside of you. So now, one-to-one, that means that essentially everything that you're perceiving is a part of the observer. Correct. Itself. That, that, that it's, it is what John Wheeler, the guy you cited before, John Archibald Wheeler, called the participatory universe. Mm-hmm. And you know, people will say, oh, John Wheeler, who was John Wheeler? Well, John Wheeler was the guy, as you said, that came up with the term of black holes. And in fact, this whole model depends upon black holes. This is really intriguing. And this is black holes are crucial to all this. Um, and it is the idea that within an enclosed system, the second law of thermodynamics argues that energy can only ever change from one energy form to another and can never be lost. But it is recently being proven that information is energy. Now, if I then threw my computer into a black hole, effectively, that information would be lost forever, which contradicts the second law of thermodynamics. Right, and this, right. is why, this is why people like um, uh, Stephen, Hawking, right? Stephen Hawking came up with his concept of Hawking radiation. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea that information does not get sucked into a black hole. It gets smeared along the event horizon of a black hole. And it is turned into digital. There's a mirror image. One part of it falls into the black hole, and there's a mirror digital copy that is created on the the, the edge of the Schwarzschild radius and the edge of the black hole. They then have suggested that the edge of the universe itself, imagine the universe has been expanded for, what, 13.8 billion years since the Big Bang. It's like a huge inflating balloon. And they argue, and the, the, there's more evidence for this, that on the edge, the edges of this huge balloon, like we call it the balloon, there are Planck square lengths. Planck, Planck length is the smallest length of, of, of distance you can have of matter. And the Planck length and Planck squares, they say that each Planck square can contain one qubit of information. That is digital information. And literally, we are living within a two-dimensional hologram that we perceive as a three-dimensional reality. Now, again, this is not on crazed ideas. This is, this is quantum physicists, the latest research in quantum physicists, people like Craig Hogan at the Perimeter Institute in Canada is working on it, a guy called Juan Maldacana, 
and and a very famous Israeli physicist called Jacob Bekenstein all work upon this model. And it's the idea that reality and consciousness are much more closely related. We perceive information, and from information, we create the external reality from us, from our acts of observation. We collapse the wave function. And this is all bringing together the Copenhagen interpretation with the Einsteinian stroke, uh, stroke bone model. So linking this back to the, to the, the book, it seems as though what we're collapsing, they say, is just mathematical probabilities. But um, the, the hidden universe or the invisible universe, which is the subject of the book, from which these um, these entities arrive, I think it's a good time for you to maybe mention the your, your terms for both the sensorial experience world, but then also the world beyond our senses where, you know, it's possible that non-human intelligences, intelligences above or on, in a different plane than our own exist. What are those terms? Can you introduce those to us? I can indeed. I use the term the kenoma and the pleroma. I use the pleroma quite specifically because one of the, the biggest influences on my thinking, not necessarily in my beliefs, but in my thinking in the way I structure, the way I understand the world, is Gnosticism. Okay, and the Gnostics were a first-century schismatic Christian sect, but their beliefs actually came from an earlier time. The, you know, the ancient Greeks had very, very similar ideas. Also, Gnosticism was the thing that the Sufis in Islam were interested in, and it very much links with the concept of Maya that you have in Vedanta. And it is the idea that there is a reality behind this reality, a reality that is denied of us because, you know, your wonderful quotation that you used earlier one from William Blake, mm -hmm. we are locked within the cave, within, within our cavern, within Plato's cave, for want of a better term. And our senses take out information. The brain is an attenuator, as Henri Bergson argued, the French philosopher C.D. Broad argued it in 1954. Um, Aldous Huxley wrote a book on it, The Doors of Perception. And the idea is that our brains don't give us the full informational field because we are we need to be able to, in, to take the information in to allow us to survive within this simulation, within this whatever it is that we exist within. But there's a reality behind it, and that's the pleroma. Now, the Gnostics argue the pleroma is where the real world is. Anybody who's interested in philosophy will know the concept of Plato's forms, the idea that everything in this world is um, a denuded reflection of something that is the universal, like there is a universal tree, and the right. trees that we have here are reflections of that. There are the shadows on the cave wall. Yeah. Shadows on the cave wall, quite right. Don't let, let me finish with something about that later, I must tell you about. But the shadows on the wall, Plato's cave, is something, again, something I'm working on at the moment. And indeed, I'm planning to recreate Plato's cave using my hypotheses and my ideas in Greece in the original location of Plato's cave uh, spring next year, uh, which we're working on at the moment. But going back to the, the shadows on the wall and the, the caves, the... I think the Canoma and Pleroma is best explained, actually, by an exposition of Plato's cave. Uh, have we got time for me to explain what we mean by Plato's cave? Yeah, yeah. If you think this fits in, great. Plato was trying to get across ideas that I'm trying to get across. And what Plato said, imagine a scenario that there are a group of prisoners, and they have been prisoners since their birth. 
and they live in a cave where their heads are put in such a position that they can only ever look at the back wall of the cave and they're chained. Okay. They can only look at the back wall and behind them is a raised walkway. And the other side of the raised walkway is a fire. What happens is, is that groups of actors or individuals walk across the walkway with cardboard cutouts of animals and trees and objects in three-dimensional reality. The prisoners only ever see the reflections of those, the shadows of those objects as they look at the cave wall. But because they have no other experience other than what their senses tell them, and this is profoundly important because this is the same as we are, we only ever see what our senses tell us are there, that they believe that this is what the world is, shadows on a cave, okay, which is exactly what William Blake was saying. However, one of the prisoners, for reasons unknown, manages to break his shackles, and he turns round, and he sees the, the walkway and sees the fire. And he walks past it and walks to the entrance of the cave. And he <laughs> sees the reality as it really is. Now, like the shadow, Neo in the Matrix, yeah. Correct. Now, the shadows on the cave are what I call the kenoma, which is the emptiness. It's Greek for emptiness. Okay? But we believe it's full. The word pleroma is Greek for full or fullness, and that is the real reality. And that's the mm. place outside of the cave. And he sees all these wonderful things and the colors and everything else. And he walks back into the cave and he tells these other prisoners and he says, hey, guys, what you think is real isn't. There's a whole world out there. Of course, they will say to him, you're crazy, you're mad. And it's because they cannot in any way, they haven't got the the facilities to appreciate what he's seen. And I believe this is what happens when people have glimpses of the pleroma, when they take, when they have dimethyltryptamine, certain individuals who are non-neurotypicals, who have classical mig classic migraine, people who have temporal lobe epilepsy, people who experience autism, people who experience Alzheimer's. These are all people. And when the doors are blown open, it's schizophrenia. It's right. when the doors are open. And I wrote a book a few years ago called Opening the Doors of Perception, which I put what I call my Bohmian IMAX. And I call it the Bohmian spectrum. I've just gone through what I call the Bohmian spectrum there, which is in deference to David Bohm. So the idea is that we are locked within our cave and we can't see all this. So there is the pleroma, which is the, the, the universe outside of this simulation. Then there's the kenoma, Maya which the Indians call it, the illusionary world that we think is real and we think is reality. It's the shadow on the cave. Fascinating. So what are some techniques that people use to open the doors of perception, as you say, and see these, the pleroma, the other levels of reality? This is the whole secret of esoteric traditions. This is why people train themselves into deep forms of meditation. This is why deep meditators see the world in a different way. It's mm -hmm. the idea of seeing the reality behind the reality. The terms are used many, many times in different ways. It's just focusing your attention. As Jacob Bome, who was a, a Protestant mystic in the 17th century, said, a man can go insane just looking at a pewter dish because suddenly you will see things in things and your focus will change. Now, for most of us, who are locked within the doors of perception, our doors of perception are locked closed, neurotypicals. 
we can only ever experience these other worlds using entheogens, using substances like dimethyltryptamine, ayahuasca, ketamine, LSD. These are the ones that blow the doors open. Right. But, but there are other individuals who, as I said, happen naturally. They are natural individuals that just see the the that everything is not figures dancing on a cave. But mm-hmm. we can train ourselves to do this. And given certain circumstances, people can do this. And I believe this is what the lucid light machine does. It, it opens right. up our doors of perception in some way. So you mentioned a research project at the University of London led by Anton Bilton. And they are essentially assembling a group of participants who are willingly being injected with extremely high doses of NNDMT, dimethyltryptamine, which you mentioned earlier is produced in our, our uh, pineal gland, or so we, we think we believe. And this has been illustrated in, in labs using rats. We, and rats' brains are extremely similar in their function to humans. And obviously, for moral reasons, we don't just uh, slice somebody's head open and immediately sample their pineal gland, you know. But in rats, it's, it's confirmed. So it's, it's extremely likely that that organ uh, between the two hemispheres of the brain, the, the pineal gland or the third eye, is creating DMT, which is just incredible. So if you're willing to share, I'm, I'm curious, have you ever experienced these, these uh, entities for yourself that they, they are uh, participants are regularly being injected with dimethyltryptamine and being essentially catapulted out of their five sense experience of their body into this higher dimension. And then they're reporting back consistently, anecdotally, but uh, extremely uniformly, these entities. Have you ever experienced what they are experiencing directly? No, I haven't. I'm always um, a descriptor of other people's experiences. Um, one day, maybe I will, under controlled circumstances, um, test this out for myself. Um, legally, I may add, in terms of because it'd be part of a research project. But I'm right. quite interested to try this. I, at the moment, it's other people describing these things. Um, and what they tell me is extraordinary. And these, again, are postdoctoral researchers. These are not just your guy down the local bar. These are people who have spent their life working in virtual reality environments, working with hallucinogenic substances and everything else as well. And they regularly tell me that when they go into these altered states of consciousness, the entities are waiting for them. The entities will tell them that maybe this is not the right way of doing it. They go into these altered states and the same entities greet them in the same sets of circumstances, which suggests to me that whatever the world they go into, it has a consistency. But not only that, people who take and experience dimethyltryptamine tell me that the reality they go into is even more real than this reality. When you come back to this reality, you you realize when you go to the Kenoma, you realize this true state of the Pleroma. And suddenly your worldview and the, 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 the sudden solidity of the world around you that you think is there suddenly isn't. And I know of nobody that has had a DMT experience that doesn't report that back and say, my life has changed completely. I see the world in a different way. Now, the question here is, can we, can the pineal gland stimulate this in ordinary people? And I'd argue, yes, it does. As you mentioned there, there's been work done by a lady called Jimo Borgigian at the University of Michigan, who in 2017, they discovered dimethyltryptamine in the pineal gland of live rats. 
It's the first time that dimethyltryptamine has been found in the brain of a mammal. Now, this is extraordinary because this then explains the existence of something called the trace amine-associated receptors in the brain. These are receptor sites within the neurons that seem to be designed to work exclusively with dimethyltryptamine, which means that dimethyltryptamine is a neurotransmitter. If dimethyltryptamine is a neurotransmitter, it effectively means that it has been evolved, that the human body and other bodies have evolved dimethyltryptamine. Now, dimethyltryptamine is in the human body. It's in the liver, right, it's in the right. stomach, it's in, the, it's in mm-hmm. the spinal fluid, it's in most plants, it's everywhere. Now, why has this substance evolved? And indeed, the bigger question is, how can a group of molecules, which as I said earlier on, a 99.xxx empty space in a particular configuration, can when placed in the brain, create alternate realities? This is the point of my work, is that people just say, oh, they cause hallucinations. My argument is, Hold on a minute, guys. What are hallucinations? How do you define hallucinations? In fact, you haven't even at first base of understanding the concept of consciousness and how the brain creates consciousness before you start explaining how the perceiver perceives these hallucinations because you've got no idea what hallucinations are anyway. I call it hubris. You know, it's this, we understand. They don't understand. They have labels And they think because they have a label, particularly if they make it Latin or Greek, it sounds really cool. You know, it's it's like, you know, uh, idiomatic. Something's idiomatic. So somebody will say, you've got idiomatic epilepsy. So somebody says, oh, the doctor knows what I've got. I've got idiomatic (laughs) epilepsy. So if you look up the word idiomatic, it means we haven't clue what it is. Right, yeah. You know, this is the game they play, you know. Yeah. So there was a study at the University of Sussex that they're actually – taking people's brains into MRIs and measuring the blood flow and such while they're on uh, psychedelic mushrooms or psilocybin, which is chemically extremely similar to dimethyltryptamine. Am I right? Yes, you are. So do we yet understand exactly what's going on in the brain? And you do mention this in the book. I'm, I'm just excited to share this with our listeners. Yeah. This, this, what is, yeah. This is extraordinary. Um, the research, I mean, I live in Sussex and I know some of the people that have been involved in this. And funnily enough, and again, you may be interested to know this, that the, the same research team have been working with the lucid light device and the hypnagogic light device down at the University of Sussex. So at the moment, there is pending a paper on the, on the hypnagogic light device as well. So it's quite exciting news that. But it's a place called the Sackler Center um, at the University of Sussex. It's uh, the, uh, the Department for the Study of Consciousness. And there's a guy called Anil Seth and another guy called Adam Barrett. And what they did was they gave um, a group of individuals either um, ketamine, uh, psilocybin, or LSD. And what they did was they tested what happened in the brain when these substances were active. And what they discovered was extraordinary because ordinarily the argument is that sleep is some form of um, denuded version of consciousness, that you're, you're, you're less conscious when you're asleep than when, than when you're actually actively awake. But they found this wasn't the case, that when these people went into these altered states of consciousness, the brain worked in a completely different way. It suddenly started work, the signal diversity Change. There were more diverse signals taking place, but also the brain was less integrated. Areas of the brain that normally communicate ceased communicating in some way, as if what was happening was that the substance was actually stopping the brain effectively 
being an attenuator. It was stopping the brain's abilities to cut out, to, to cut out the broader reality. To be a experience, yeah. Yeah, it was bringing in the larger experience. It was bringing in the wider, greater reality that Aldous Huxley intimated. And it seems that what is happening is by the brain shutting down its abilities, it is able to open up to a broader universe. Mm. Mm. So you said that in instances where people are experiencing this broader reality, often incredible things happen like someone say has a dream and they discover that they actually were sharing their dream and you share a, a really interesting story in the book about Sam Treasure's talking white cat uh, can you share that with us I certainly can I mean Sam is somebody that's going to be working with me on a lot of the projects going forward as well mm. um, Sam Sam's a young Canadian and she was telling me one day about her her out-of-body experience. She has very, very powerful out-of-body experiences. Um, she's a postgraduate anthropologist and everything else, so she's bright cookie, but she's had some extraordinary experiences in her past. And when she was a teenager, she she had an experience that really she found quite extraordinary. And she says that there was there was an outsider at the school she was at in, in Ontario. And one night she had an out of the body experience where she finds herself out of her body and she finds herself downstairs in her house. And she said she was there in three dimensions, but she knew she was dreaming. And as she's there, a white cat entered the house and walked up to her. And she went over to the cat and the cat spoke to her, which she found quite strange. And then she comes to her. And then she's at school the next day and this outsider guy comes over to her and says, uh, hi Sam. And he'd never really spoken to her before, I don't think, but they then became subsequent friends. And he turned around and he said, um, he said, do you have a dream last night about a white cat that spoke to you? And she turned around to him and she said, how do you know about that? And he turned around and he said, because I was the white cat. <laughs> Now, this suggests to her, and we have discussed this quite considerably, that some people can get into your dreams. When you're in a dream state, when you're in a hypnagogic state, which is that kind of liminal state between wake and the sleep, or when you're in an out-of-body experience, or when you're lucid dreaming, you can encounter other people who are lucid dreaming. Now, again, I work with a lot of people that work in lucid dreaming. I mean, one of my, one of my associates, a guy called Charlie Shaw, and Charlie does experiments with lucid dreaming where he can lucid dream and he will see other people in the dream, in the lucid dream state, and they will carry back information into this state where they both witness the same thing from different viewpoints. Now, this is profoundly important because the reason we believe that the reality we are seeing now is real is because it's consensual. That is because I could turn around and say to you, Nick, look, there's a blue car over there. And you say, yeah, it's a blue car. So it's consensual. So we have shared it. So therefore, it's externally real and provable. But what happens if somebody goes into a dream sequence and shares the same information and brings it back? That suggests that that reality by the criteria we use now about what reality is, is just as real. Yeah, and there's, an, there's a, a very clear sort of causal uh, picture showing up. It seems like DMT is the key to all of this because if it's released in the pineal gland, 
it's likely what is creating our visions in when we're having dreams, mm. right? So if people are sharing their dreams, there's a similar phenomenon going on when people have taken ayahuasca or a smoked DMT injected it, however they do it in their private or a lab setting, that they're experiencing these exact same entities that you talk about in the book. For example, things that have showed up throughout all of history, like the greys with their very specific shaped skulls and their, their dark almond eyes. Um, I'm wondering, can you tell us what some of these different kinds of beings are, how they came to be identified and what they're called? Right. Okay. I'm, I'm really fascinated by this because my writing style is always to start in one direction. And then literally my daemon, my, what I could consider my higher self then draws me off on a completely different direction. And this is what happened with this book because I started to get into some very, very interesting areas in terms of, because people who read my books will know that nothing is off ground for me. Nothing is, 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 is not, I will bring everything in. You know, because as far as I'm concerned, we've got to stop this silo world whereby you just discuss your own subject. I think information doesn't keep itself in silos, does it? You know, it, it, the, the world is a much more interesting place than this. Yeah. And as a I philosophy believe, major, I can appreciate that. It's being true. Being a generalist, yeah. Yeah, to, uh, you know, being a generalist really helps because you can bring information. I use the analogy of a painting. You know, if it's all one color you're not going to see anything. But as you start bringing in different colors, you start to see the picture in much greater detail. Picture, yes, absolutely. And this is what we need to do. And this is why academia has become too rigid. It's because people are experts on the the, the knee movements of the less, lesser spotted grasshopper, you know, which is all well used. But that person knows nothing else about anything else, but are considered an expert because they can call themselves doctor. You know, right. And there's not much money, at least in terms of grants and connecting dots that are going to upend you know, all these different you have the corporations and industries and fields, yeah. But so going back, so again, you know, with my interest in Gnosticism, but also when I was at university, I mean, I studied the sociology of religion and the sociology of language and various other areas. So I'm always quite interested in belief systems and how they mold the way people think. And I am developing a model that says that I'm calling it the egregorial model of reality whereby we collectively create external reality from our own anticipations, our hopes, our fears, our dreams, just like we create dreams. And dimethyltryptamine, endogenous dimethyltryptamine, as Rick Strassman said, there is evidence that endogenous dimethyltryptamine is our reality modulator. And it's, it's what dimethyltryptamine that creates the external world we think is external to us. But it's a far more interesting thing than, than that. So when people experience these entities, I think they are both part of us and not part of us. We create them, but they are independent of us. There's a kind of a feedback mechanism going on here. This is why I call it the egregorial. Egregores, the word egregore is Greek for watcher. Now, if you go into the history of the Bible and you go into the history of, of, of Islamic teaching, you will find this concept of the watchers, the Nephilim. These are entities that seem to come from somewhere else. In the Bible, they talk, they landed on Mount Hermon, and they then uh, they had sex with, with, with human women, and they taught humanity certain skills. And then they, they seem to disappear again, and they seem to go or they seem to 
to, to, you know, strange. But these creatures always seem to the certain factors I discovered in the book that I find intriguing about them. They also always seem to be related to darkness. It always seems to be that they, they are found in caves or round caves. For instance, the jinn, which are the, 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 the malevolent beings in, in, um, in Islamic teaching, particularly in Sufism. Now, the jinn, the, the jinn in the Quran, it says that the jinn were made, and this is crucially important for the way where my model is going at the moment. They said that the jinn were created out of smokeless fire. We were made out of earth and water, and the jinn were made out of smokeless fire. Smokeless fire is, to me, another description for a substance known as plasma. Plasma is another form of matter. It, it is to do with ionized atoms. Okay, and it it is it flows in a different way. But can you imagine entities that were made from plasma would be very different to what normal physical entities would be? They could move around things. They could reappear. They would appear as light beings under certain circumstances. Now, I believe this is what these entities are, and I believe they can use our thoughts to bring themselves in from the pleroma or from areas between the pleroma and the canoma, the areas that people argue when they, they are shamans, the, the, the upper world and the lower world. If you look into esoteric Sufism, if you look into the Kabbalah, you look into Christian esotericism, you look into mysticism, they all argue about these, these areas that are above us or around us that we can't perceive under normal circumstances, but entities can come through. Now, these entities seem to use our hopes and our fears to bring themselves into existence. This is why I would argue that fear is involved here, why ghosts seem to engender fear in people, because it's the fear they need in order to manifest. People, when they have uh, circumstances where, I don't know, where they have sleep paralysis and they, they, they sense the cowled figure during sleep paralysis, these, again, are the entities drawing themselves into us, but they are part of us. And I think the alien greys are exactly the same. They are all part of the same phenomenon. Now, again, one of the, and again, it was Sam Treasure that pointed out to me this, the American TV series at the moment, Hellier. Hellier hits on so many of the areas that I'm writing about. It is uncanny. It's synchronicity writ large. Okay. Mm. And it's again the idea they come in the in the in this TV series. They come to similar conclusions to myself about the true nature of poltergeist activity, of ghost activities. There's almost this kind of humor involved. Synchronicity is involved in it, jokiness is involved. And of course, if you read the writings of people like Terence McKenna, the people that write about dimethyltryptamine and ayahuasca, what do we have? We have the cosmic jokers, we have the machine elves. Right, right. We have these creatures that and the elves, I think elves, elves are just a different version and a different interpretation of the greys. You know, the greys are like they're elvish in the way they, they, they react. And also they can manifest particularly, for instance, with my own mother. My own mother saw a grey in her bedroom and she described it to me in detail. Now, my mother was developing something called Charles Bonnet syndrome. Now, Charles Bonnet syndrome is again... When the doors of perception start to open and individuals who have Charles Bonnet syndrome start to see and get this, they see little creatures, they see children, they see small creatures everywhere. 
And it's because the DMT in their brain, and the reason this is happening is because, and again, I do the neurochemistry of this. And again, if anybody's out there who thinks I'm wrong, fine, I'll, you know, correct me on this. But I argue that what is taking place during, because my mother was developing Alzheimer's, and there's a direct relationship between Alzheimer's disease and Charles Bonnet syndrome. It's a precursor for it. That's how I got the diagnosis. What happens is with, 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 um, Alzheimer's is that there are things in the brain called amyloid plaques. And what they do is they literally destroy, they blow up the neurons. They destroy the neurons, but they particularly destroy certain things within the neurons, um, which are the structures that hold together the neurons themselves. Okay. Now these things, these structures within the brain, these structures within the neurons, a guy called Stuart Hammerhoff, and Roger Penrose, they work together with something called a model called orchestrated objective reduction. And they argue that these little structures called microtubules are the things that allow us to actually tune into the reality field. These are the things using quantum physics and using zero point energy. These are the things that vibrate at certain ways and actually create the the interference patterns that create the holographic nature of what external reality is. And I think, I think I'm right in saying I'm the only person on the planet that have made these links. I may be wrong, but I don't know of anybody else that's made these links. And these It seems extremely cutting edge. And I, I poke around in these fields, if you can't tell, and I haven't seen anything that is quite advancing such a, a complete picture yet. No. Well, thank you. That's good. Because the, what I think is, is that when these uh, amyloid plaques destroy the microtubules, they stop, the, like the psilocybin, like the research done at the Sackler Center with, with um, hallucinogenic substances, I think this mm -hmm. is what happens when individuals have Alzheimer's. Because what happens is their, their brain areas are switched off in exactly the same way. And I will guarantee, and I'd love to do the research on this, I will guarantee that if you did a, a, an analysis of which parts of the brain are shut off during these experiments at the University of Sussex, and you look at the parts of the brain that are shut off when somebody's decreasing their brain capacity because of Alzheimer's, you'll find they mirror each other. Wow. I will guarantee it. Well, that is definitely falsifiable. That is a real scientific experiment that can be made. It is, and it's the first time I've thought about this, to be honest. You know, so that's <laughs> really excellent, Nick. I'm honored. Yeah. Before. But this is the way of doing it, and I think Alzheimer's. I think autism is the same. There is something in autism called the the uh, the extended world syndrome. A guy called Markelow, I think, came up with this. And why do autistic children react the way they do? They react the way they do because their world is full of noise and sound because they're mm -hmm. accessing the pleroma. They're accessing the the true nature of reality and they can't handle it, Wow, you know, and this is why they act the way they do. This is why people who have experienced temporal lobe epilepsy, people who experience schizophrenia. Again, nobody I think is making these links between hallucinogenic substances and, and schizophrenia or Alzheimer's or even classic migraine, you know, classic migraine. Because, it, because it's cutting off the, the parts of the brain that are an inhibiting factor. Correct. Correct. And I think, I think the hypothesis works. Um, and I, I, I am, I have to say, amazingly disappointed. And it sounds vain, but it's not meant to be. There's the little, little me going, for God's sake, listen to me, guys. And I see all these academic papers being written, and I see all these people, and I see people like, I don't know, 
Um, a classic example is somebody like uh, uh, Lanza, Lanza, who wrote the book um, by the bio, Biocentrism. You know, there is Lanza has a tenth of the material in his book Biocentrism than I have in my first book, Is There Life After Death? We go down the same paths, but I take it to so many different areas and I link so many bits of the picture. And Lanza's book is huge. Lanza, they were going to give Lanza, people were suggesting that Lanza should have got the Nobel Prize. And I'm sitting there going, hold on a minute. My book came out four years before his. Yeah. (laughs) We say exactly the same things and nobody's interested. You know, well, I, honestly, I think the more commercially interesting things get, the more sort of uh, up in their ivory towers a lot of the academics get. This, you, you should take this as a compliment. It, it reminds me, it seems almost as epic as Albert Einstein before he hired that, uh, was it a German to fly or to use the telescope to photograph the solar eclipse? It's oh, like, yes, to show you like kind of so you should really band. follow through and do those, those, um, scientific experiments well we are more working on this as time has gone on there's more and more academics coming to me and there's more and more academics actually reading my work now going whoa woof this is quite exciting quite exciting exciting. and we do need to to work on experimentation at the moment i'm in negotiations for my doctorate uh, with one of the uk universities and one of the things we're planning to do is a series of experiments and write them up in academic papers so I can get a PhD by publication, um, which which could be quite interesting, I think, and hopeful. Groundbreaking, groundbreaking stuff. So you discussed the idea that consciousness cannot be explained using normal particle physics. We've been over this a bit. And recent discoveries suggest that there is even a more fundamental microscopic, almost sub-quantum field known as the zero-point energy field. Yeah that is emanating our consciousness as essentially, you write in the book, a source of light. Uh, In effect, there's no such thing as empty space because at that micro level uh, supplying our consciousness, the zero point energy field is constantly just exploding with energy and information. And this relates back to ancient, ancient ideas, such as uh, the idea of the pleroma in Gnosticism or chi in ancient Chinese Mm -hmm. philosophy the Akashic records from uh, ancient Indian philosophy, you theorize that it may be the pineal gland, and this is kind of putting a button on everything we've talked about, is the source of DMT. And DMT is the key to the participatory participatory universe in the sense that it's shutting off that inhibiting filter in the brain and allowing us to perceive reality, allowing us to see beyond the, the shadows on the cave wall, so to speak. Totally. I mean, one of the things that has long intrigued me, I mean, in fact, you mentioned the Akashic Records. Um, uh, I wrote a book with Irvin Laszlo a few years ago, uh, and Irvin Laszlo is the person that cited the idea of the Akashic field. Mm-hmm. And zero-point energy is quite intriguing in that it is energy where there should be no energy. And effectively what it is is if you take um, any substance, but usually they use helium-4, and you take it down to just above absolute zero, which is 273.17 degree minus 273.17 degrees Kelvin. Kelvin, or is it zero Kelvin? No, I think it's zero Kelvin, and it's minus 273.17 centigrade. It's, it's so, that is the point where there is no movement within subatomic particles, which means there's no heat. 
which means it's zero point, which means that there is there is no energy at all. Now, what they found is they take they can you cannot get to zero the zero point. You, can, you can't get to absolute zero, but you can get within a billionth of a, a degree of it. And when they take helium-4 down to that level, there's still energy coming up from the field. There's still energy coming up from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Now, the question here, and it, it gets quite tender, but it's really quite fascinating about the zero-point field and why, why it's so strange and why this energy is so strange, is that there is something strange. There is something called Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. And that is that in any subatomic particle, can you, you can only ever know its its velocity or its location, but you can never know both. Right, right. Now, the thing is that if you then take a subatomic particle down to zero point, if you take it down to absolute zero, it's not moving anymore. And if it's not mm. moving, you know where it is. Wow. And if it's not moving, you know it's not moving, and you know where it is. You know its velocity is zero, which contravenes one of the basic laws of quantum physics, which means you there has to be energy there because it has to have energy coming from somewhere. Now, the idea is that this energy just emanates from the quantum vacuum. And the quantum vacuum is a plenum. It's not a vacuum. It's a plenum. It's the opposite. It's full of energy. Now, they know from research there are things called vertical, uh, virtual particles that literally come into existence from nowhere for a billionth of a second and disappear again. Mm-hmm. Where do they come from and where are they going from? More importantly, the, uh, the mystery of um, dark energy and dark matter. We know that 94% of the universe is missing. We know this from the way in which galaxies um, revolve, how, the, how they revolve around. They, they don't revolve in the right way. When you say 97% of the universe is missing, are you talking about 94? 94. Are you saying that it's dark matter? Is that what you're referring to? Uh, no, uh, referring to what? Dark matter or oh, dark, dark, matter, energy, yes. dark gravity? Dark, dark gravity, matter yeah. and dark energy. Yeah, dark matter and dark energy. Exactly. And you know, they, you know, again, this labeling, they use it, they use the term dark matter and dark energy, not because it's dark. They don't know right, what it right. is. They don't know where yeah. it is. <laughs> but yeah. they, they pretend that they kind of know because they've named it. You know, I call it the labeling theory of science. Right. Like um, the Big Bang theory. It, it, there was no air to carry sound. Yeah. So there was no sound. It wasn't, wasn't big and it wasn't a bang, <laughs> you know. And then they yeah. have this wonderful theory as to why, well, how the universe has expanded the way it was by saying that for the first I don't know, few years, there was this super duper hyperinflation of the universe where the universe was expanding thousands of times faster than the speed of light. But the only way they do that is that model is in order to explain what they can observe. This is like Rudyard Kipling called Just So Stories, like how the elephant got its, got its um, trunk. It's the same kind of argument. Science is doing Just So Stories. They see the evidence and they think, and they come up with a model to explain it. And suddenly that model becomes the accepted. It's like epicycles. You know, in medieval times, they couldn't explain uh, retrograde motion in the outer planets. And if we had a, where the earth was the center of the universe, the planet shouldn't be doing that. So they come up with epicycles and then they come up with epicycles on epicycles. And this is what science is doing now. They need to go back to the basics to say, consciousness is prime. Let's take it from that basics. And let's start looking at it in a completely different way. We need a new paradigm of science because we can't explain everything. The, one of my favorite quotes in, I think it was 1894, um, Mitchelson of the Mitchelson-Morley experiment was opening up a new section of the astronomy section at the University of Chicago. 
And he stood up and he made a speech and he turned around and he said, there's no point in anybody going into physics at the moment because there's nothing left to be explored. There are two or three issues that we have. Black body radiation is one of them and the photoelectric effect is another. But basically all we're going to be doing is calculating to the sixth decimal point. There was one young scientist in Germany at the time who was told if you want to, he had a choice of becoming a quantum physicist or a musician. He decided he would become a physicist, even though his tutor told him there's no future in physics. We've already explained everything. That young man was a guy called Max Planck, who in 1900, in December 1900, stood up. And the only way he could explain one of those problems, which was the problem of black body radiation, was to suggest that energy came in quanta, little packages, rather than being continual. The rest, as they say, was history in 1900. And then 1905, Einstein came along and explained the photoelectric effect. And by doing so, brought about wave-particle duality, the idea that light is both a particle and a wave, depending on whether it's observed or not. And this is why reality out there is stranger than we can ever imagine. Yeah, it's a very exciting time. It almost harkens back to even the Copernican Revolution when you have this arrogant establishment. You know, history really kind of just repeats itself, doesn't it? That it, it gets this group think going and then, you know, that is the accepted model and anything else is heresy. And we don't use the word heresy today, but that's akin to how they react to a lot of these ideas that threaten the established models. Well, well totally, wasn't it? You know, the, the Inquisition dragged Galileo uh, to trial. You know, and he said under his breath, it still moves when they they were told it wasn't and they were saying it wasn't. And of course, the definitive book on this is Thomas Kuhn, who I think it was 1970, it might have been slightly earlier, wrote a book called The Theory of Scientific Revolutions. And he argued. I actually had to read some passages from that in school, yeah. It's a good book, isn't it? It's excellent. And it's always been something that profoundly affected me because we know that one science and one paradigm grows out of the other, but it goes, it develops because of the the black swans or the white crows that are in the science now, the things we cannot explain. And as science mm-hmm. has developed, and I think it was Fred Hoyle that said this, the astronomer, when he said, you just need one thing to be proven that contradicts the modern scientific model and the whole edifice collapses. And I think that thing that's going to be proven is probably going to be precognition. Either precognition um, and people being able to predict the future or possibly the idea of of entities coming in from somewhere else. Mm. So precognition, what the CIA has already been working on, right, for years Uh, in in terms terms of... uh, scientific remote viewing, things of that nature. So you, you could absolutely be right. Um, final question. Does the simulation theory of reality, something you also talk about, become more or less likely considering what we now know about this hidden universe, about you know the key of DMT opening up the brain to see uh, more of what's going on, uh, the idea of the zero-point energy field uh, backing up, giving this real scientific gravitas. Is it, what does it look like for the simulation theory going forward? Yeah, I think the first thing the simulation theory has to do is to find a new term because the word simulation implies that it's based upon something else because, of course, that's what a simulation is. It's, mm-hmm. it's a simulacra. It's something that it looks like something else or is made to look like something else. 
as Brad Allard said and Philip K. Dick, somebody I've written about, used to write about. So we need to come up with something different. It's more and a program. A, pro- a projection or a, projection a, or something a hologram. Yeah. It's something like that. And it's the idea that the reality we perceive is not what it seems. And it seems to be based upon, and I think the point that we're going to f- discover is the more we know about information and the more we know about the nature of information. You know, way back in the 1950s and the 1960s, a guy called Claude Shannon, and it was Claude Shannon that first came up with the idea that information has a form of physicality to itself, that it has some kind of reality that we don't understand, and that everything at its basis is information and information processing. Now, there are a lot of researchers now, you know, there is the old idea that the old paradigm doesn't end by people changing their ideas. It ends when the old scientists start to die away and the new scientists start to come up. And this is what's been happening in the last 15 or so years. There's a lot of young scientists coming up. And I I cite one particular example, a guy called Vlatko Vedrel, who is uh, a British uh, Serbian quantum physicist who was, I think, and may still be professor of quantum physics at the University of Singapore. And he wrote a book two or three, a few years ago now, putting forward the whole idea of why it is that the evidence is overpowering, that the true nature of matter and reality is digital and that everything is digital information. Now, if everything- Digital meaning binary? Binary, yeah. It's it's actually, it's quibits. It's actually quantum binary information, okay? Mm. Now, we know from the work that's been done, even Google are working on this now on quantum computing. Now, quantum computing is quite fascinating because it implies that- Hugh Everett III's PhD thesis in 1957, where he postulated the many worlds hypothesis, has validity. And that this is one of a number, probably billions of simulations, all of which overlap on each other. And all these simulations are subtly different from each other. The ones nearest us are are closer to us, and the further away you get, the, the, the more different they become. But get this, if that is the case, it means that there is... A Nick and an Anthony or a Nick and a Tony having exactly the same conversation in millions of universes at the moment, but each one is subtly different, okay? Now, quantum computing works by realizing that there are alternate universes and actually doing the calculations in these universes, okay? And it is all to do with things like, for instance, you know, your brain really goes to mush when you start to realize things like non-locality, superposition of subatomic particles, that subatomic particles, once they, they are engaged in the same quantum state, if you then place them at the other side of the universe, you do one thing to one subatomic particle, the other one reacts instantaneously, which suggests, as David Bohm said, at a deeper level of reality, what we think is two particles, in fact, one. And that, in fact, everything is just unitary. It's just a unitary thing. Even consciousness, we are all one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. I was just going to say it evokes that oceanic feeling of oneness when you consider that broad, broad view. Oh, totally. You know, the idea that we get sometimes... During, I know that my friends and associates that have had particularly not DMT, but 5-MeO-DMT. 
DMT is considered to be what's called the, um, the spirit molecule by Rick Strassman. 5-MeO-DMT mm-hmm. is called the God particle because when you take 5-MeO-DMT, you suddenly learn the greatest truth. And I know associates who have taken this, they're still coming down. You take 5-MeO-DMT, you are never the same. <laughs> and they turn around and they say, you realize that everything is one. And that's the most uncanny sensation. And everybody I know that's taken 5-MeO come back and says that, wow, wow, I'm just part of everything. Now, again, a friend of mine had a near-death experience drowning in the sea off, um, off the south coast of England in 1999. And part of his um, death um, past life review, uh, he was back being a child running across the road. And he was back in his old body. 35, 40 years before, he's running across the road. He gets hit by a car. He feels the pain of his leg being hit. And then suddenly he's out of the body and, and get this, he's looking down at a woman's leg and the woman has a, a ladder in her stocking and she's fiddling around with the ladder of her stocking. He then looks up and she's got her hand on a steering wheel. He realizes she's driving a car as she looks up to see a little boy run across the road and get hit by her. He then felt all her pain coming out, looking at um, his body, lying there, his broken leg, and all her fear. People say this when you have near-death experiences, when you have that touching the reality behind reality. As You know, it was Morris Buck in 1900 who wrote a book called Cosmic Consciousness. And in this book, Mm -hmm. he said about this oceanic feeling, this feeling at one month with everything. And that's where the word atonement comes from. It's at one month. At one month, yeah. And it's feeling you're part of the greater something. You find the God within you. You know, what does ancient laws, what do magicians try to do all the time to find the God within? Even the Bible says, look for Jesus within you. It's because we, as, as Bill Hicks said, we are all one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. We are shards of the pleroma. We are in in esoteric belief systems, particularly in the Kabbalah. There is this tale about the smashing of the vessels. And in the smashing of vessels, they argue that there were these vessels that were created and they were a singular entity and they were smashed. And this is how individuation took place, that it was the smashing of the vessels. And the major teachings of all esoteric esoteric traditions, there are two things that we are a single consciousness experiencing itself subjectively, but also, and there's the God within, and you find the God within, and also that we all have two personalities, which I discuss in my book, The Daemon, which we haven't even touched upon, which I call the daemon, which is the part of you that exists in the pleroma, that has Mm -hmm. lived your life before many times, within the simulation, for want of a better term, and your Edelon, and your Edelon which is the being that exists within the simulation and only lives one life and doesn't Mm -hmm. remember their past lives. Mm. Very, very fascinating. Well, I don't know how we could end on a more empowering note than realizing that everything is one and we are essentially at a certain level. Not that we are God, but uh, God is all of us and we are it. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you, Anthony. Wow. What an amazing conversation. I think that may be my favorite podcast I've ever done. Uh, is there anywhere that people can follow you, site that they can subscribe to you? I highly recommend that they check out The Hidden Universe. 
Yeah, no. Sort of. Um, if you're interested in my work, um, my books, you can order my books from any bookshop you want. Some of the bookshops will have them in there. Uh, that's both in the USA and in the UK and in Canada. Um, also, my books are in, um, at least one of my books is in every major European language and some minor European languages. I've got two books going into Greek um, in a few weeks' time. Um, all my books are on Kindle uh, and on Kobo and various other digital outlets three of my books and there will be a fourth coming out soon are all on are on audible um so you can listen if you're interested in this uh, again you just go onto audible and order it there if you want personal signed copies of my books you can go onto my website which is anthonypeak.com that's anthony with an anthony with an h and peak with an e on the end also i'm extremely active on facebook um, and I'm more and more doing Facebook live broadcasts. We've started doing these more regularly and we're going to be doing them once every week or once every fortnight. And myself and Sam Treasure are planning to do um, joint broadcasts on this as well in the future. In terms of um, Instagram, I'm becoming more and more active on Instagram. You can find me on Instagram on uh, Ferryman54. Um, so check that out as well. Um, Join me. There's uh, all my books have all have their own Facebook sites as well, where you can debate and discuss. But join me on there. I've got around about eleven thousand people involved in Facebook at the moment. I'm up to my limit on five thousand friends, but you can follow me. It's unlimited on um, Instagram, so by all means, join me on there and join in. There's more and more of us. We're growing day by day. There are more and more people getting involved in this. I don't need to get reviews in the major papers of the world. I don't need the BBC or NBC to be reporting me. It's getting round by word of mouth. Mm -hmm. And it is getting round by word of mouth. And it's by doing interviews like this. And this is why I thank you, Nick, for having, you on the sh having me on the show, because it's only through people like you that I'm getting my ideas out there. So thank you very much for this. It re I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And likewise, that was an excellent, excellent conversation, Anthony. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nick. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter, Patreon, Parler, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram at Nick Aris, and on NickAris.com. My new book, Depolarized, Transcending the False Left-Right Narrative, could not be coming out at a more opportune moment on July 30th, 2020. I'm extremely excited to share with you some excerpts of the audiobook in progress as many episodes during this period of time leading up to the launch. July 30th, this year it will be available on Kindle and Amazon, as well as Audible and iTunes for the audiobook shortly thereafter. This episode will also be available on our partner podcast, Pull Up a Pew, hosted by Drew, who also hosts our Missing Persons podcast slash tool. It's the companion to the OWL, Once Was Lost Missing Persons phone app tool, which every single person listening who has children or even just elderly adults or friends or family who are mentally challenged. Definitely give the OWL podcast a listen and probably download the app. They are changing the game when it comes to missing persons. Be sure to check out Anthony Peake's work. I know I'm going to YouTube to check out the Hypnagogic Light Experience video for myself. I look forward to the next episode, which I think will be an excerpt from the upcoming book, Depolarized. I hope you stop by, and thank you for listening. Keep at it. There's a lot more where this came from. All right, everybody. So I think that's about enough said. That was a fantastic interview. 
with Anthony, please make sure and subscribe to Tome Time. Uh, I think that's an excellent example of the quality of work that Nick is doing right now and gathering uh, authors that are absolutely incredible. Nick being an incredible author himself, make sure and check out his own books. Make sure and hit the five stars for Tome Time. Very important. Also for Pull Up a Pew. Uh, if you're listening to that on on Pull Up a Pew, please make sure and take just a second to hit the five-star review for us. It's so, so very important since we're an independent uh, collaboration here of podcasts of the Owl Once Was Lost podcast, which of course is the tool and companion to the Owl Once Was Lost Missing Persons phone app on iOS and Android. It's free. You've got to get that. It is the next level in locating and helping to find missing persons. You got kids, just like what he was talking about, or elderly parents, anybody that's mentally challenged, um, you know, that can go missing. It happens all the time. So just be ready and, you know, God forbid the worst does occur. You're, you're ready to upload the information and we can be discussing with you the elements of what occurred within real time and hopefully find that person within the first crucial hour. So that's it guys. Um, we're just going to end it on that and look forward to the next episode of pull up a pew. And we're going to be doing the cold cases with once was lost. I know we've been talking about that for, for a while, but we want to put together, you know, at least a good solid four, five, six, episodes, get them all uploaded for you so you can binge them and then we'll continue. Um, and knock on wood, hope to God we don't get any missing persons uploaded, but when they are, if they are, then that's when we are moving immediately, getting on that, jumping on it and getting the information out to people in that area in real time. So they can be searching all those eyes and ears out there searching. So it's just, off, you know, basis off laws of large numbers, as I keep mentioning. All right, guys, that's it. We'll talk to you later.